you know, the process has been winding, but the case is really simple. If you if you break it down, guy does some work, state steals it, guy gets a settlement, state agrees not to do it again, state passes law to take his work, guy's in court. Pretty straightforward. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and that was underwater videographer, cinematographer, and co-founder of Nautilus Productions, Rick Allen, who documented the recovery of Blackbeard's flagship, Queen Anne's Revenge, and who filed suit against the governor of North Carolina, among other North Carolina state entities, for infringement of his rights related to that footage and photography of the infamous pirate ship. The following are excerpts from a Second Saturday conversation in 2022 with Mr. Allen, in which he gives an overview of the case, and our recent conversation, in which he provides an update on the current status of that suit, as well as his perspective on the precedent created by his case, the leeway given to states to commit copyright infringement, and how Mr. Allen's definition of justice has evolved since he first encountered the way in which artist rights can be overridden by state sovereign immunity. Rick Allen with Nautilus Productions is going to give us an overview of his experience with copyright infringement. All right, Stephanie, thank you as always. It's such a pleasure to be here. It's good to meet all of you virtually. I hope we can do it in person someday. Um, so I want to talk about my case, Allen v. Cooper, and, and the trials and tribulations of being a uh, documentary filmmaker. Just to give you some background that leads into all this, because it's very helpful, I think. Um, about 300 years ago, uh, the infamous pirate Blackbeard had blockaded the port of Charleston uh, in about May of um, 1718, and he held a bunch of prominent citizens hostage for a chest of medicine and about a thousand pounds uh, in sterling. So when Blackbeard and his flagship, the Queen Anne's Revenge, and three other sloops that were nominally under his command uh, headed north, they ended up in North Carolina. And at that time, Blackbeard had about, as I said, 300 pirates under his command. And he ran his flagship, the Queen Anne's Revenge, aground uh, outside of Beaufort Inlet, North Carolina. Now, the problem that Blackbeard had at this point was that he had 300 pirates who really hadn't been paid in a while. They had just split a thousand pounds. And when you divide that by 300 pirates, everybody got about three pounds from their last adventure. And so there were grumblings among the crew. And so the general belief is that Blackbeard ran his flagship, the Queen Anne's Revenge, aground on purpose. And I like to call that the first case of corporate downsizing in the new world. Because what Blackbeard did was he took off with two of his sloops and left his flagship, the Queen Anne's Revenge, aground and another sloop, the Adventure, also run aground at the same time. So he split his payroll and his crew in half and took off for Ocracoke, North Carolina, where he was later killed in a fierce battle in November of 1718. So jump ahead about 300 years to 1996, a company called Intersal, working under permit from the state of North Carolina, um, just off the coast of uh, Beaufort, North Carolina, found a shipwreck. And as it turns out, they had found the wreck of the Queen Anne's Revenge, a little over a mile offshore from Beaufort Inlet. So um, 
what InterSAL did is they made a deal with the state of North Carolina, and they did something the treasure hunters never do. They handed over the shipwreck to the state. And what they did do, instead of handing over the wreck in total, they kept the media rights, a share, a small share of any treasure that was going to be found, and the replica rights, understanding that those were probably valuable things left in the shipwreck. Blackbeard had had plenty of time in 1718 when he'd run his ship aground to empty the ship of anything valuable and take that with him. So it was unlikely that there was any quote-unquote real treasure still on the wreck. So in um, early 1998, the state of North Carolina announced that they had made a deal with Intercell and was going to be sharing media rights, replica rights, and or had given them media rights and replica rights, et cetera. And so I, by North Carolina Public TV, in early 1998 to begin shooting the first documentary about the discovery and recovery of the Queen Anne's Revenge. And so when I arrived there, you know, I'm having the time of my life because I'm scuba diving, I'm shooting underwater footage, which is my work, and I'm literally going to be on the ground floor of documenting the recovery of the first ever pirate ship pretty much from beginning to end. And while I was there, I sat down and it was pretty clear that this is what I wanted to be doing for a while. And there was a 15 year timeline for the recovery of the wreck. And I was like, wow, this is something I'm going to have to commit to. But this, the deal I had with UNC TV was short time. So I read the memorandum of agreement between the state of North Carolina and Intercell that had found the wreck. And once it became clear who had the media rights, and that was Intercell. I went to Intercell and said, let's make a deal. I'm an underwater filmmaker. You guys have the media rights. You don't have the ability or technology or expertise to do this job, and neither does the state of North Carolina. So let's do this. I will license any of the footage I, I use, and you can get 25% of the gross of that. So whenever the BBC or Discovery or History Channel shows up, I'll license that footage. Intercell gets 25% of the gross. They make money off of that. State of North Carolina wins because they are having uh, documentation of the wreck done, and the entire world is going to see what they're doing, which is obviously great for travel and tourism. So everybody wins. So this setup continued for um, almost 15 years until about 2013. And in 2013, a new uh, administration came in under Governor McCrory. Um and so things kind of changed on the project. And so in June of 2013, um, Intercell and I discovered that the state of North Carolina had been using my footage for handing it out commercially without my knowledge, permission, or license. And up until then, I'd actually allowed the state to use footage at no charge in the museum and um, with the understanding that any commercial use had to be directed to me. So it was uh, and there's a written agree or there were written agreements to that effect. And um, so it's really quite simple. You know, you can use the footage for research. You can use it internally. But if somebody outside needs it, then you've got to let me know. Well, they had not been doing that. So in about June of 2013, um, the state of North Carolina also decided that they wanted to add uh, other production crews to the recovery of the shipwreck and using their friends group, the Friends of the Queen Anne's Revenge, which is a nonprofit, they hired two other production companies to come in and shoot footage on the shipwreck, which was obviously in violation of InterSAL's media rights. And so at that time, uh, InterSAL, who had found the wreck, filed 
a uh, complaint in the Office of Administrative Hearings, which is the lowest level court in North Carolina. And then I revoked the state's right to um, use my footage and said, you know, no more. You know, this is not going to work. What happened is by October of 2013, we ended up in a settlement agreement. Um, InterSAL had filed their legal complaint. And so the state entered into mediation with them. And then the state invited me to join the mediation so that they could have a quote unquote global solution to their problem. So as part of that um, mediation, we reached an agreement on a couple of things. So one of the things that the state agreed to do was return all of the video to me that didn't have a time code and a watermark. And I allowed the state to use my footage still for research purposes, but not for any commercial use. InterSAL also agreed to share their media rights with the state. And also the state of North Carolina agreed to pay me $15,000 for uh, five um, infringements that we had noted with them and to stop infringing going forward. So that was pretty much the outcome of the agreement. Um, and we were like, okay, let's all move forward from here. Unfortunately, what happened at that point was that literally within hours, the state began to violate some of the terms of that settlement agreement. And these violations increased and continued over the next couple of years. In 2014, Interstyle filed another lawsuit in state court for breach of contract with the state. And that went, that started to work its way through the courts in 2014. And then one of the most interesting things of all happened in 2015 is the state of North Carolina then decided that they would pass what we like to call Blackbeard's Law. And so in August of uh, 2015, the state wrote this law that converted all of my intellectual property into the public record. As you can imagine, that didn't go well with me. <laughs> so here we are with a state law written against myself and InterSAL to basically take our IP and our property and make it the uh, agency and the property of the state of North Carolina. So in December of 2015, we filed a lawsuit against the state of North Carolina for violating uh, my copyrights and filed that in federal district court in North Carolina. And as you know, that suit worked its way through the federal court system, was appealed, and we went all the way to the Supreme Court. And we based our argument in the Supreme Court on what was called the Copyright Remedy Clarification Act. And what happened is in the 1970s, or up until about the 1970s, most government institutions um, and colleges and universities and that sort of thing pretty much understood that copyright law applied to everyone, and they didn't have any exception. But after about 1970, uh, universities and state institutions started to ignore that and decide that they really didn't have to listen to copyright law. It was, it was uh, not something that was germane to them. And so in 1990, Congress wrote a law called the Copyright Remedy Clarification Act, the CRCA. And basically that law just reiterated that the states could be held to the same standards as any other person when it came to copyright law, that they they could be um, charged with copyright violations and they could pay damages the same way as anybody else. The weird thing that happened after the CRCA was passed was that copyright infringements got worse by state institutions, not better. 
And so by the time of 2015, we arrived with the first ever case where what happened was the state of North Carolina had claimed that they had sovereign immunity and copyright and could not be sued. And so when we went to the Supreme Court, we sued them saying that under the Copyright Remedy Clarification Act, we could sue the state because the Congress had made their intent very clear uh, when it came to that. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court disagreed. And in a nine to zero um, ruling, decided that um, the CRCA was unconstitutional. And then another thing that happened along the way in Intersal's case was that one of their filings in state court, they said that the settlement agreement that we had um, signed with the state, both Intersal and myself, Nautilus, was void, illegal, and unenforceable. So the state of North Carolina was pretty pretty much arguing on all sides that contracts with the state were void and unenforceable, and that they had sovereign immunity and could not be sued. So once again, so we come back from the Supreme Court having lost as handily as you can lose and as badly as you can, and uh, licked our wounds for a while, and none of us wanted to um, stop the lawsuit and 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 quit because it was so important. It doesn't matter if you're a writer or, or a musician, a composer, or any other kind of artist, if states have sovereign immunity and copyright, they can take your work without consequence. But if you infringed on a state's copyright, um, you could be you could be prosecuted and have to pay damages under federal copyright law. Just as an example, the University of North Carolina Press holds 4,400 copyrights to works. So if I use their work uh, illegitimately, they can sue me, but they can take anything that I've done and use it without any consequence. So that's kind of the conundrum that we're in. So after the Supreme Court, we um, filed what's called a motion for reconsideration with the federal district court judge and said, you know, Your Honor, we have a problem now because the uh, Constitution gives me the, the exclusive right to my writings and discoveries. That's the Copyright Act. But we have no legal recourse under the Constitution. And so in this wonderful, twisty thing that is our Constitution, we can now go back and sue to protect our rights. And what we've chosen to do is pursue what's called a takings clause, which is which is essentially eminent domain. Because when the state of North Carolina passed Blackbeard's Law, which converted my intellectual property into state property or public property, they did so without uh, any sort of restitution or without any sort of due process, which then violates my Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment rights under the Constitution. So you really go down a constitutional rabbit hole in this case, so <laughs> it, that's a whole talk for another time. Um, so... We go to the district court judge and say, you know, my Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment rights have been violated. The state has used my has illegally taken my work, and this is essentially eminent domain. And so, we'd like to go forward with the new lawsuit. The district court judge agreed. He, he sat in our hearing. We said and basically said to our lawyer, "So you want me to follow my sword again and send you back into the court system?" And we essentially said, "Yeah, yes, Your Honor, we do." And so as soon as we did that, the state of North Carolina appealed the judge's motion for reconsideration. And before he could rule on their appeal, the state of North Carolina appealed that motion for reconsideration to the Fourth Circuit in Richmond, North, uh, Richmond, Virginia. And so essentially 
the state appealed the motion for reconsideration to be reconsidered. And that was in November of last year. And so we are still waiting on the Fourth Circuit to give us a ruling one way on that very simple motion, simply to say, yes, we accept the motion or we deny the motion and you can go forward or not go forward, whatever that whatever becomes of that. So just to give you a quick timeline of where we are, we go back to November 96, InterSAL finds the Queen Anne's Revenge. I begin work on the project in 98. In 2013, the state violates my intellectual property rights. In October of 13, we sign a settlement agreement. In August of 2015, the state passes Blackbeard's Law. And then after they posted Blackbeard's Law, within about three weeks, and I forgot to mention this, they posted several of the original videos that were at issue in the settlement agreement from 2013 on the actual media website and to their public-facing sites for the Department of Natural and Cultural Resources. So after they... Past Blackbeard's Law reposted my intellect, my uh, reposted videos, including my footage, we filed in December of 2015. In November 2019, we went to the Supreme Court in March. We lost that fight. In September, two years ago, um, we filed for a motion for reconsideration, had our hearing the next year in February. Uh, in August of 2021 of last year, that motion was granted, and by the end of October, um, we, the state had appealed to the Fourth Circuit in Richmond. And so here we are waiting to see what the Fourth Circuit will do in our case overtakings and where we will go from here. But as you can see, it's been nine years since all of this started, seven years in the federal court system, and now essentially two, well, a year waiting on a simple motion to move forward. So at that point, I will stop and open this to any questions, comments, suggestions, whatever you may have. So go ahead, Stephanie. Well, I'll open it up for anyone else who wants to start first, because I do have questions, but I'm sure that each of you does as well. So please, who, who would like to perhaps start? Oh, well, my question is in just a different way of looking at it, in a sense, um, you know, in my work in Holocaust art, it's the perseverance and the pressure to just keep persevering and the money it costs and, you know, how you can be run down by that. And I was wondering how you keep your fortitude to pursue your rightful claim. Um, well, it's a certain level of insanity, certainly. Uh, on the way to the Supreme Court, though, we had a, a great law firm called Quinn Emanuel contacted us and wanted to take up our case. And so they took that pro bono to the Supreme Court. And when we got back from the Supreme Court, um, my local law firm, Olive & Olive, which is a boutique IP firm, basically they've become so invested in this that they've agreed to continue the case pro bono. And they've really kind of bought into what we're doing here and, and certainly believe in, in the importance of it. And so luckily from a monetary perspective, we can uh, afford to keep going forward. Um, but I would, I would say it's certainly a strategy of the state to just grind us down over time. Um, unfortunately for me, once I get hold of something, it's very hard for me to let go of it. So, um, I'm not the kind of person that gives up when things get difficult. So yeah, it's, it's a grind, but the bigger picture is the, the problems that this creates for any artist are so big that 
it, it really, at some point, somebody's going to have to deal with it. And this is the first time that anybody ever char challenged sovereign immunity and copyright in the legal system. And so, you know, when you're the first one through the wall, it's kind of bloody and dangerous sometimes for sure. Um, but it's, it's also, it's fundamentally unfair. Um, and in a world that literally runs on IP, I'm not sure how it works because you've given states and state entities carte blanche to to violate your intellectual property rights. And there are other cases making their way up now um, about that very same thing. And then there was also a case from Indiana soon after uh, our Supreme Court ruling um, where the state of Indiana was misusing uh, some company's uh, computer software. And so the company filed suit and said, you can't do that. And the judge literally said, have you not read Allen v. Cooper? You can't sue them. And so that suit was over. Mm -hmm. And there was no consequences for the state hmm. of India. So what do you do? And before uh, everyone joined, we were also talking about the Texas A&M case, uh, Rick. Perhaps you could um, touch on that a bit for those who may not have heard about it. Sure, absolutely. So um, there's a case that's actually awaiting cert in the Supreme Court right now. Uh, a gentleman named Mike Bynum, who's now a good friend of mine because we trade a lot of emails and phone calls, um, is a writer. And so whenever, say, Duke University wins the national championship and a book comes out afterwards, that's what he writes. So he creates those uh, does sports books and that sort of thing. So several years ago, he was writing a uh, book about Texas A&M University and a group that's called the 12th Man. And that's essentially a booster club for Texas A&M. And it comes from a story that's literally 100 years old where so many players were injured on during a football game that they called somebody out of the stands to play on the team so the game could continue. And so the Texas A&M football fans became the 12th man. So he wrote this book, and he sent a chapter of that book to the 12th Man Foundation, the nonprofit that, that feeds money into their athletic program, and asked for their input to make sure that it was correct and, and that sort of thing. So the... Um, head of that foundation had his uh, assistant retype that uh, chapter, put his name on it and erase the copyright information and then emailed it out, posted on Twitter or uh, any other social media, oh about 400,000 <sighs> copies of that, thus wiping out the value of that book because 400,000 people had already seen that chapter. So, Mike took a different tack in the Texas Supreme Court uh, or, or in the Texas courts, and he filed a takings case. And he ran into much the same problems that we've had. Um, Texas judges didn't want to touch it. They would say, oh, this is a federal issue. It's copyright. We can't do it. Or they claimed that it was not a takings at all. It didn't meet the standards for that. And Mike's case went all the way up to the Texas Supreme Court, where in the end he lost there, where the state said, no, this isn't a takings. You don't have an issue here. Go home. And so because of that ruling, Mike has appealed his case to the United States Supreme Court, uh, again, under the takings issue and saying that, you know, his his Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment rights have been violated as well. And we're waiting to see if the Supreme Court's going to hear his case. Um, the Supreme Court likes when settling conflicts in the law. Um, so I'm hopeful, maybe even a little confident that he might actually might actually get certification and the Supreme Court will hear his case. But that's one of the cases that's percolated up through all this. Can I ask, um, is it 
I guess the legal the legal analysis, you know, does have its it's it's just fascinating, I guess, um, where it can go. But just as a practical and political matter, is it not the case that any one of a number of successive administrations, governors, attorneys general, state legislatures could have done the right thing and made this go away a long time ago if they wanted to, and sort of like backed off the case, you know, given the proper recompense and just sort of like gone back to negotiating in good faith and not even have a say in the first place? Well, that's a great question, Andrew, and it's, it's certainly one that we have been asking ourselves. Um, at the time that the Governor McCrory was elected, the Attorney General was a guy named um, Cooper, and he was a Democrat. The Governor is a Republican. Cooper then became Governor, and, and he's now in his second term as Governor, and the Attorney General is a guy named Josh Stein. Um, yes, at any point, you would think that reasonable people would go, you know, maybe this is stupid. We should not be doing this. This, this is a really strange argument to be having. And, um, we have certainly gone to them after we, our motion for reconsideration was granted. We went to the AG's office and offered them a incredibly generous way out. And they didn't take it. So. Yes, reasonable people would have fixed this a long time ago. One of the things that uh, had jumped out at me from the Supreme Court decision was this idea that there would have to be a pattern by the state. And so it it does uh, make one wonder how many cases like this do you need to constitute a pattern where there is a problem that needs to be addressed? Well, and that's another great question. And, and as you as I were, we were talking before we started this, it's like, yeah, how many people do you have to murder before you decide it's a crime? Um, when we went to the Supreme Court, we could only cite about 16 cases where states had infringed uh, someone's copyright and that it had, it had gone and at least had entered the court system. Um Part of the problem there is how do you quantify the court case that nobody's going to file because it's too difficult? What did happen after our Supreme Court case was that the Intellectual Property Committee in uh, the Senate went back to the Copyright Office and asked for a survey to see just how bad copyright infringement was by state entities. And at the end of that survey, the U.S. Copyright Office came back with approximately 160 cases that they could verify where people had filed suit or started a case against a state or state entity for a copyright violation. Um, Again, the problem there is that how many people did not file a case because of the just difficulty of suing a state, especially where there's no case law in front of you to do it. And in the Supreme Court ruling in, um, the ruling basically threw the case back at Congress and said, you have the power to fix this. You can write the laws that, that are more constitutional and can deal with this. And up until now, Congress has not been able to get to that point. There was a push there. Uh, we had a little momentum for a bit of time in which Congress was working on the problem and current events and other copyright issues have become more important. You know, copyright law is a, a narrow field within the much bigger legal community and sovereign immunity within copyright law is a tiny, tiny area. And even copyright lawyers don't know a whole lot about it sometimes. And how can you, because nobody's been here before. Um, 
but yeah, is there a problem? Yeah. If you've got 160 cases, you can verify. And that was over about a 20 year period from 2000 to 2020. Um, and the indications were that those, the numbers of cases were increasing every year um, until the ruling in Allen v. Cooper when that number stopped. But those cases probably stopped because of my lawsuit and because of the ruling. It's like, why sue a state if you're going to lose right up front? Anyone else with questions for Rick? Yeah, thanks. Um, Rick, really fascinating and complicated story. And you have to forgive me, I'm a UK lawyer. So I find the whole state federal interaction thing hard to get my head around sometimes. So this is probably a very ignorant question, but I was trying to work out. So Blackbeard's law is a North Carolina law, but does the is the effect of the Supreme Court ruling that any state now has sovereign immunity in relation to copyright infringement? Is that the, so? Or, or so? I suppose another way of putting it is, if that whole fact pattern had happened in a different state, would the result be the same? Well, and you really is that is the fundamental question because effectively federal law has been trumped by a state action, which is a very strange thing um, because the Supreme Court said that the Copyright Remedy Clarification Act was unconstitutional. Now, the copyright law still exists, but I can't use the federal statutes to sue a state because of this ruling. So we're having to back up and, and like I said, do use takings as a way to try and get at that same thing. Um, but it is curious because if if this is true, it basically takes us back to the founding of the United States when there were 13 colonies. And a gentleman named Webster went to all 13 colonies and got a different copyright law so that he could sell his uh, dictionary. And the whole point of that was that there would be a a overarching copyright law that not only could we live with as a country, but so that we could live with internationally. You know, we have copyright treaties with the UK and 180 some odd countries in the, in the world so that we have at least comparable or workable copyright laws in, in a world that runs on IP. And what's particularly to dive into the history well a little bit, and you'll appreciate this, Emily, is the first copyright statute was the statute of Queen Anne, as you well know, in 1710. Blackbeard in 1716, 1716 named his ship the Queen Anne's Revenge after Queen Anne. Um, in 1789, the Constitution of the United States was ratified where I live here in Fayetteville, North Carolina. So... Yet another connection, and the Copyright Act is part of that Constitution. And then 200 years after that, or 100 and some odd years after that, um, there's a guy from Fayetteville working on the Blackbeard's flagship, the Queen Anne's Revenge, who gets in a copyright fight over piracy and Blackbeard and, and Queen Anne's Revenge all again. And so the circles and irony in this are pretty hard to let go of. But if you're a history geek, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> And my understanding is that there is this, uh, and I think you were refer referencing this a moment ago, that Congress can pass another similar but better statute than the CRCA. They just haven't done it yet. And and 
I believe the Supreme Court in your case had said something, you know, hoping, I guess, to sound lovely. It was like create a tailored statute to bring digital blackbeards to justice. And so they are leaving that open, but it just hasn't happened. And and who knows when or what basis that they might use it for. And going to um, to the point Jan was making about just um, Holocaust restitution issues. And there is like to me, like something really troubling about the kind of use that sovereign immunity, um, how it's being uh, how it's being used or abused. And uh, what Andrew was saying about they could have settled this a long time ago. If you want to do the right thing and not abuse your rights as a state, this doesn't have to happen. But clearly it's a growing problem, like as we see with Texas A&M, North Carolina, what was it, Indiana, and many others. Yeah. Well, and, you know, in the end, what does it all come down to? And, you know, there's got to be a reason for the fight. And um, sometimes you want, is it just as simple as money? And, and one way I like to approach that is, according to the North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources, which oversees the, the wreck and the wreck site, um, they want to build a new Blackbeard Museum in Beaufort, North Carolina. They have a Maritime History Museum there now, but they need to update it and enlarge it. And it would obviously house all the black, you know, what is it, the quarter million plus artifacts that have been recovered from the shipwreck. And they've said that that museum would have a $100 million impact on the community when it's built. So that's substantial in and of itself. Another way to look at it is that we know for a fact that um, the state was looking into doing a national and or international artifact tour. And to give you some perspective there, the Titanic tour in the city of Tampa, Florida, um, ran for nine months. It had 900,000 visitors at $18 a head. So multiply that times 25, 50 cities in a couple countries. And you start to understand the actual amount of money that's going to go in somebody's pocket here, both in real dollars and in travel and tourism dollars that are going to drive people to the coast to see the artifacts artifacts from Blackbeard Shipwreck. And then the last metric I like to put is that currently I license footage from the shipwreck for $150 a second. And I've got about 80 hours of footage in my collection. So I'll let you do the math on what that what that amount is, but it's significant. Um, so you know, in the end, does it all come down to money? Maybe so. Um, it may also be about sovereign immunity. If if sovereign immunity is not as impenetrable as as the state thinks, this could open the door for lots of other cases that you know involve shootings with police officers and. Uh, you know, crimes by elected officials. And so, you know, I think there may be some worry about putting a crack in the door there. Um, but at the same time, you know, a copyright law is there for a reason. It's a federal law for a reason and it's overarching for a reason. And if any state can write a law that says, oh, we're going to take that. Well, we're going to write a law that says, oh, all software about so-and-so belongs to us or our music by Mariah Carey belongs to us. Um, that's a real problem. And this is not a hypothetical discussion anymore because Blackbeard's law exists. It's been done. Um, you can also look in the Northeast where it was it four states 
uh, passed laws uh, telling publishers that they would have to provide books at a, at a, a price that the uh, state set. Um, you know, and so that's a preemptive sort of thing. Um, those laws so far have, I think one of them may have passed and been appealed and the others have not. And then I, I was in a conference with a, a law class and I think there may have been a 10 attempts of something like that. So there's a lot of attention in the copyright world now, and it would be very helpful if Congress would get a hold of it because that's the world we live in. And, and the laws and statutes are, are way behind right now, whether it's NFTs or whatever. Yeah, to do quick hands on that, um, well, not quick, hopefully quick. Um, they, the court cited to the Patent Remedy Act, um, so so presumably it's even worse than even we're outlaying it, right? So they're using like one branch of IP to bring the hammer down another branch of IP, meaning that it necessarily can have worse implications. And I think the other thing I was thinking of is the whole, you know, number one, the um, Congress must have acted specifically to limit the, um, the state's immunity. And secondly, that there must have been a provision allowing for this limitation. It, it was almost like some sort of like, you know, twisted originalism that like, there has to be like some provision that you could specifically point to it about states and, and intellectual property violations, which because it doesn't exist means that you can never act on it. So it's almost like, how does, how does somebody fix that problem, I guess, when you're attacking it? No, and Andrew, you're absolutely right. And you know, there's there are folks who go to say, well, let's let's look at what the Constitution says and how what happened around the Copyright Act. The problem is that the people who wrote the Constitution were all businessmen, and they understood intellectual property and the value of it. And so, when the Copyright Act was created, they all went, "Yeah, great idea. Let's do it." So there's no there was no discussion. There was no back and forth. They just all agreed it was really wonderful. And you're right. So there's nothing to to fall back on and look at and go, well, what were they thinking? And the interesting thing is intellectual property is not a political issue because we all own it. You know, it belongs. It doesn't matter what party you're from. You benefit from your your uh, rights. And so it's it's very strange that they've not been able to that Congress. Well, no, it's not strange that Congress has not been able to do this. It's, it makes perfect sense. But, yeah, Congress has not been able to address this problem. And it may take somebody like a Microsoft or a Disney with very deep pockets to to finally make this happen. So anyone else with other questions for Rick or comments? I kind of wanted to hear about how it has affected, like, Rick, the artist, photographer, videographer, like, you've gone through, like, all the legal side of things, but, like, how has it, has it tainted your view of the work that you did from 1996 to 2013? Like, are you still able to license it? Are people still viewing it? Um, like, just if you could speak to that side of it, I'd really love to hear it. Okay. Well, yeah, let me try to answer those in reverse order. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there. what's really interesting is because in 2015, when we filed our lawsuit, all work on the project stopped. And because I'm the only one that has that footage, it still has value. And um, I won't say regularly, but I do license that footage. I had an inquiry uh, 
uh, from a show just a few months ago, and I'm waiting to hear back from them what they're going to license. Um, so, and that's part of why I did it because, and did it on my own dime because I understood the value of it going over time. Because if you're the guy that documents the recovery of the first ever pirate and it's Blackbeard and you've got the library, I'll invest the time on the front end because it's going to be valuable on the back end, whether it's documentaries or museum exhibits or especially a tour. So, you know, uh, in 1998, I looked into the future and said, well, that's where the money's going to be. You know, and it's worth it. And and on a personal level, I mean, how can you beat that? I mean, I'm a history nut. I scuba dive. I make my living shooting underwater. You've just hit the trifecta of everything that I love to do. Um, and so we would go out in the fall um, for anywhere from a month to six weeks and work on the project. And without a doubt, it's some of the hardest work I've ever done. Um, but it's also the part of the year that I look forward to the most. Um, and I've made deep lifelong friends as a result of that because we've we've baked on a hot deck and frozen and freezing November rain together, you know, and um, that's hard to beat. And and recovering cannons from a shipwreck and lifting them up from the ocean floor when a cannon weighs 2000 pounds, a lot of things can go bad or go wrong very quickly and the outcomes can be very bad. So you've got to trust the people that you're with. And so we built a great bond there. To the first part of your question, um, it's it's disheartening at the very least, um, because both Intersal and myself, like I said, you know, we allowed the state to use footage at no charge for the benefit of everybody, um, and so what I like to say by 2013, free wasn't good enough. Um, it's certainly, if somebody approached me with a state project now. No, no way. I would run screaming from it. And, you know, whenever my friends go, hey, uh, the state of North Carolina wants to do so and so, they've got a bid out to do this, I will go, well, here, let me tell you how that works out. Because if you literally go read the state contracting information, there's a whole paragraph in there about it doesn't matter what this contract says. We've got sovereign immunity. And in the end, we can decide to use that. Um, I know this because my wife's a professional still photographer, and she was working on something with the local university, and part of their contract language included an entire sovereign immunity clause that basically said, yeah, we'll do a contract with you, but it doesn't mean anything because we can ignore it. So the lesson to take from this is doing business with the state is a dangerous, dangerous thing. And if you're a, a small business like me, you should really think very carefully about it or get a whole lot of money up front to make the danger worth it. And so in my case, since I was working on my dime, um, it never once dawned on me that my copyright would not be worth what it, I thought it was. And I've, I've been, in, been um, I guess, involved in copyright issues probably from the beginning of my career. Um, especially in the underwater world, I've tried to convince my colleagues that, you know, you need to watermark your work, you need to register it, you need to do all those things. Um, so, yeah, what does it say? If if a federal law does not protect you, what's the point? And why do this again? And why should anybody? Sobering. It is, sadly. Um, what I would want to ask Rick is, has he considered filming any of these especially the legal parts like i feel like that would 
be something that would be interesting to watch, especially for people like us who are in our country. Copyright law is basically a joke, more or less. So has he considered that? That's another great question, Enid. Um, I have had some of my documentary friends say, you know, you should be documenting what you're going through. Um, and I just, I don't have the heart for it, to be honest. Um, it This takes so much energy and so much, even when you're waiting, it takes time. And um, I don't know if I could do it justice. Maybe somebody will decide after we're done, whenever that may or may not be, um, to kind of go back and, and look at what we went through. But um, maybe we should, maybe I should have done it. I don't know, but it's, you know, it's a little like Sisyphus. You're put, pushing the boulder, boulder uphill. And so that, I can only push so many boulders. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I do love that idea though. So if you ever needed encouragement, like I think that would be a great way to advertise this problem and, and, you know, make some kind of documentary film or something with it, because I think the more people um, stand up and say this shouldn't be happening and doing it in some kind of entertainment, entertaining format to draw audiences, I think you'd be the man, Rick. <laughs> yeah, they probably need somebody a little more handsome, though, that's for sure. So I want I want Matt Damon to play me in the movie, though. That's what I've decided. So. And then what you guys don't know or, or may not have noticed is that um, I actually I had an accident in 2011 and I lost my left arm in an explosion. And so I actually I don't have my prosthetic on, but I actually do have an arm with a hook. So <laughs> it's as perfect as an irony as you could get. I actually have my own hook as I work on this project. So at that point, there would probably be a story to tell. Um, I have no idea when the end of this comes. I knew when we started that. It could take a decade. Um, it's going to be a good deal longer than that if we can maintain the fight. But um, on, and that's that's part of why it's it's fun to talk to you guys because, you know, one of you may be somewhere and talk to the right person. Um, for artists, most artists aren't aware of copyright. They don't really pay attention to it, and they need to be educated about what it means and what it can and cannot do. And I think my biggest frustration is that um, I I was told by my lawyers at the beginning of this, the copyright law is incredibly powerful. There's a lot of things you can do with it. And unfortunately, they've been wrong. It, it, it seems that there's not much you can do with copyright, at least in my narrow world. And um, it's very, very expensive to fight this fight. And so that automatically takes out a lot of people. And it's just through a weird twist of fate that I could afford to do this at all. And um, so I, you know, I don't know how you fix it, but, you know, it starts somewhere and talking to people is part of that, that fight. So um, it is a David and Goliath thing. So I, I'll run in and take the slice out and run out and, and keep doing that until, until Goliath goes down. Rick Allen, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Stephanie, it's great being here again. Thank you so much for having me and letting letting us talk about sovereign immunity and copyright. Yes, absolutely. Well, so with that, would you give us an update uh, since we spoke? I believe it was September 2022. There's been some relevant events in your case. And would you give us an update? Yeah, certainly. So 
since going to the Supreme Court, we refiled um, a motion for reconsideration in federal court to have our case reheard. The state of North Carolina filed a motion asking the judge to reconsider uh, that reconsideration. And on January 17th, we had a hearing with Judge Terrence Boyle in the Eastern District Federal Court. Um, we asked him for three things. We asked him to lift the stay on our case so that we could proceed. We asked him to deny the state's petition to reconsider his motion for reconsideration that let us go forward. And he did that and denied the state's position. And the last thing we asked him was that we be able be allowed to file an amended complaint. And he instructed us to do the do that 21 days after the 17th. So we will be filing that uh, on around February 7th. Are you able to give us some insight into the points that you're going to be making uh, in the amended complaint and going forward? Um, to some extent, yeah. I mean, we'll certainly be pursuing what's called a takings case um, under uh, a case called USV Georgia. And basically, that just simply says that the state has taken my intellectual property without due process and without uh, any sort of compensation. And so that will probably be probably the, one of the linchpins of our argument. Uh, there's no secret about that. Um, the other thing we have added, though, and we did discuss it in our hearing, so that's not a secret either, is that we're going to um, call what the state has done what's called a bill of attainder. And a bill of attainder is essentially a legislature punishing a person or persons uh, without due process, without a trial. And so we say, we will say that the passage of Blackbeard's law uh, is basically a bill of attainder. And bills of attainder are specifically prohibited in the U.S. Constitution. So we'll be pursuing a couple of different avenues as to... Uh, regarding the state's violation of my constitutional rights. So this is a huge victory for you at this stage. <laughs> well, it, it's a strange victory is, uh, because we're going to be going on eight years that we've since we filed our lawsuit. And at this point, we are essentially starting over with a new lawsuit. Um, so it is a victory to still be here. Uh, because I think the the state of North Carolina's entire strategy here has been to just grind us down and make us go away. Um, and it's a victory that we will have another chance to actually file a lawsuit and maybe get to the facts of the case. Um, though we fully anticipate that as soon as we file, the state will appeal. We will be back in the Fourth Circuit on some other appeal. And it's not out of the realm of possibility that we could be back at the Supreme Court again in the next two or three years over um, the same case with maybe some differing issues. Unfortunately, this is North Carolina does not appear to be the only state that has this uh, perspective on how it treats its citizens. And would you care to speak to that? Well, certainly there are other cases like it. Um, a friend and colleague of mine, Mike Bynum, has a case going forward in Texas. Um, where Texas A&M University uh, took a chapter of one of his books about um, their 12th man uh, tradition and distributed that to some 400,000 people via tweets and emails. And he started in state courts and has not found much satisfaction there. Um, but just recently in his case, 
the judge in his case said that he could add additional defendants to his case and that those defendants, those state employees were did not have immunity from prosecution. So he is making incremental gains in his takings case in Texas as well. Um, there's also a couple of interesting bills that were filed uh, late last year or last year uh, regarding libraries and uh, requiring libraries to charge a or uh, book publishers to charge a reasonable fee for their um, for the library's use of their books without any real definition of what a what a reasonable fee was, um, and that was pretty much shot down as being unconstitutional by the AGs in those states before those bills became law. Um, but it does show that there are um, problems out there with states um, certainly overreaching when it comes to copyright law and what their rights are. Um, another colleague of mine, Jim Olive, a photographer out of Houston, um, had a case where he was suing the um, University of Houston School of Business for misusing a photograph. Um, and he eventually he lost his court case and has decided not to continue that in the federal system just because of the challenges of the cost and that sort of thing. So um, right now there's two of us battling in federal courts to protect uh, the rights of all artists uh, against uh, copyright abuse by states. Um, and who knows what's coming next? And, and there's certainly been cases where um, I know there's a software company, I believe it was in Indiana filed a case uh, against the state for misusing their software and the judge basically threw the case out and said, well, haven't you read Alan V. Cooper? You have no case here. So it, it is, it's a problem now and it's probably going to continue to be a problem as long as states can um, claim copyright to their own work and, and register their own work and take you to court for misusing their work. But you as a creator in that very same state cannot uh, challenge a state in court for copyright infringement. There's a real inequity in the law there, and that's a huge problem. And that was a really long answer. <laughs> Sorry. So important, everything you said. And the Jim Olive uh, photography case, that one, uh, it's so unfortunate that he is not able to go forward because that's a complete injustice from what I've read from the Texas Supreme Court that it's intangible and therefore not a taking. Yeah. And what's really funny is the Texas Supreme Court basically ignored um, the ruling in our case in which uh, Judge Kagan said that copyrights are property. And so they just did not want to give him a way forward and, and ignored the facts. And in, in this modern digital age in which we live, copyrights are very real property. And Ask Google or Apple or Disney or Universal if their copyrights and intellectual property don't mean something to them. And I know exactly the answer you'll get. And the states, the states yeah. that are infringing, they feel the same way about the copyrights they hold. <laughs> yeah, the states are they protect their property, too, and they have licensing deals through their universities for uh research and for all sorts of uh discoveries that involve intellectual property or scientific breakthroughs and these things are are their intellectual property their trademarks their material goods their intangible goods and they very much protect those rights and and would haul you into court in a heartbeat <laughs> if you violated their their rights 
Yeah. You've already cited some examples where people have been harmed by the precedent created in your case. What are your thoughts going forward with uh, your pursuit of this case and where it's going and how you see the mark you're leaving on the the precedent uh, for the states, uh, for, for citizens of the states? Wow, there's a lot of answers in that one. Um, it's a great question. I mean, this is really a fundamental issue. We live in a digital age where our intellectual property literally pays our bills. And if you're um, a songwriter or a musician or a painter or a documentary filmmaker, or you write software, um, you create games, you make movies, anything that we experience in life was either influenced by or made by an artist, whether it's your the, the um, apps on your cell phone or the design of the dashboard in your car or whatever, an artist created that. And and in a world where more and more people are self-employed and what we would term as freelancers and contribute literally billions of dollars to the U.S. economy, the ability to protect our intellectual property rights is not just – it's fundamental as written in the Constitution, but it's critical to – to this nation going forward and, and people making things and creating things that advance our society. So if you have a nation where a state can decide that I'm just going to pass a law and I'm going to take your work and do what I want with it, that's not very conducive to the society we live in, whether you whether you want a capitalist society or not. I've got a mortgage to pay and um other bills and things like that. And I do it through the license and sell of my sale of my intellectual property. And without that, I, you know, I'm going to be living on the streets just like anybody else who doesn't pay their bills. And so it doesn't matter if it's me or Disney or um, Google or whoever, all of us at some level depend on intellectual property to make our livings and to pay our bills and to, to move forward. And this case is really kind of a linchpin to that. And it's, you know, in the copyright world, it's very important to most people. It isn't. But when, you know, a digital society depends on protection of their rights, this case is everything. Because you've got a situation where 50 states can impinge on your rights and take your work product and essentially destroy your living just by saying so. And and not only is it not fair or inequitable, it's just fundamentally wrong. Has North Carolina or any of its representatives made any effort to reach out to you with some kind of settlement since the first settlement that they reached with you? <laughs> no. And that speaks volumes. It does. Yeah. So, yeah, you would... Um, Pretty much everybody I know that has a basic understanding of the facts of this case, and this includes a whole lot of lawyers, they always ask that question, you know, why haven't why hasn't the state just state just settled? And it's a great question because it, it would be a really smart thing to do. Um, it would help everybody involved in it. It would allow the Queen Anne's Revenge Project to move forward. And for the people of the state to benefit from uh, not only just knowing about Blackbeard and the history, but the tourism industry and those sorts of things that would benefit in a financial way. Um, 
would benefit. So it is a great question. Why not just fix this? Um, but I mean, the first thing we filed was in 2013. So it's been a decade since this all started and we're still fighting over it. So you do have to ask yourself why. Has your idea of justice been jaded? <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, what's really interesting, I mean, I started my career in television news. So I spent a fair amount of time in courtrooms, state and federal and local. Um, so I think I had a little better view of how the justice system works um, going into this. But especially when it comes to copyright law, which is mandated through the Constitution and also seems fairly straightforward in that, you know, you you create a work, you register your work, you receive federal protection for the rights surrounding that work. And because of that federal protection, you have the ability to pursue legal action if somebody violates your constitutional rights and your federal rights. Um, to have been through that process and find out that that's not really true is um, sobering to because I'm in a situation here where despite the fact that that I did the work on the Queen Anne's Revenge, I registered my copyright, I've defended my copyright, um, I've watermarked my work, I've done everything that the federal statutes require me to do. Um, I am not able to actually protect my intellectual property. And the state of North Carolina has basically chosen to ignore the law because there's no exemption for states and federal copyright law that I'm aware of. Has there been a chilling effect on the work that you do in North Carolina or anywhere or other artists that you've seen where there's been a chilling effect based on this attitude by North Carolina? Well, what's really interesting is I've become like a copyright expert with my copyright, with my artist friends. Yeah. So I get regular calls and emails and people say, hey, can you explain this to me or what does this mean or what should I do? And, you know, I always begin with, I'm not a lawyer, but um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the people who are aware of it, um, it has made them more um, thoughtful about what they do, which is not a bad thing. Um, and certainly, um, there have been cases where people I know are going to enter into agreements with states, and I tell them to be very careful and read the fine print of those uh, agreements. There is a case where a colleague of mine was signing a freelance agreement with Loke University, and you dive into their um, uh, contract language, and there is a sovereign immunity clause that says, in the end, if we decide that we don't like this contract, we can claim sovereign immunity and there's nothing you can do about it. So in that res respect, it's had a chilling effect for me personally. It's had an effect because it, it colors how I do agreements with people now um, and where I would maybe be a little more trusting or, or more willing to deliver them physical copies of things. Uh, I'm now looking at ways to, to maybe let them, use video via streaming so that they don't have a phys physical copy, um, which complicates life at their end if they've got a display or something like that. Um, but, you know, if you don't have a legal protection with a, a state museum or something like that, what else are you going to do? So um, it affects me and it certainly 
if you're a viewer to that, if you're a visitor to that museum, you may never get to see some of this great footage from the Queen Anne's Revenge shipwreck site because we just couldn't come to a technological solution that would protect my work. Um, so yeah, it, it's a problem, and it and it and it's a factor in everything that I do now. Going back to the question I had asked you previously, and just kind of uh, developing it a bit more, is there a definition of justice that you have, or has your idea of justice evolved over the course of your career, especially with this suit? Hmm. I think my definition of justice is probably a little nuanced. Um, in my case, it's really much. It's become a much bigger picture in that. It's really critical that the rights of artists be protected from intellectual property theft by states. And so justice for me is probably only going to be come if if I can reach a solution in a federal court that will have some weight and bearing on other cases like mine. Um, a settlement would be good, but that's really it's personal and doesn't solve a larger problem. And I think at this point, I have a responsibility to a lot of other people who have not yet had to fight this fight um, to maybe find a solution somehow through the courts. Um, and so, yeah, am I ever, am I going to get real justice here? No, because um, when I first started on the project in 1998, my goal was to follow through and document the recovery of a pirate ship from beginning to end. And the most notorious, notorious pirate on the planet was Blackbeard. So how are you going to top that? So when I left the project in 2017 after uh, or in 2015, after 17 years on the project, um, we had only recovered about 60 percent of the shipwreck. So personally, there's not going to be justice for me because I'm not ever going to have that opportunity to uh, document the recovery of Blackbeard shipwreck from beginning to end. And, you know, that's something that nobody has ever done and will be a huge resource to the public, to archaeologists, to scientists and all that in the future if we can ever work this thing out. So um, that's complicated. <laughs> yeah. And perhaps this next question then segues with that and, and might fit into the answer you just gave that uh, I'm curious what the legacy that you hope to be creating with your work is. I think personally, my legacy is that I really would like to leave um, my documentation of the Queen Anne's Revenge shipwreck project to the world. And I mean, when I first started the project, I looked ahead and said, you know, I'm going to be at this 10 or 15 years. It's going to take that long to recover the shipwreck. Um, but with the, the understanding within myself that somewhere down the road that this needed to be out there in the world for everybody to enjoy. Um it was certainly part of my retirement plan to hopefully monetize some of my footage licensing after the project was over for a period of time. But uh, at some point, you know, I was going to go to university or museum or, or some entity for the greater good of everybody. And that's what I would like my legacy to be. But it's become a whole lot more complicated because of this lawsuit and and this case we're engaged in. And it's it's really short-sighted on the part of North Carolina to not look into the future because there are a whole lot of people like me who are doing similar things 
that will benefit a whole lot of people and will be interesting to a whole lot of people, not just about archaeology, but any sort of endeavor. And you're sending a very clear message that there is a price to pay for that, uh, for lack of a better word, altruism. Um, you know, my work on the Queen Anne's Revenge was entirely funded by me, not by the taxpayers of North Carolina or anybody else. And if you looked at it for dollars versus hours, it's a huge money loser for me. So I must have done it because it meant more to me than just a paycheck. And, and I think that should be pretty obvious. So I would love for originally, I think I wanted my legacy to be a footnote in somebody's history book that that it was done. Um, now there's going to be a partial record of the recovery of the Queen Andrew Shipwreck Project. And now there's a whole new set of case law in Allen v. Cooper that never existed and had never been and copyrighted, never sovereign immunity had never been challenged in copyright um, prior to Allen v. Cooper. So it's going to be a very different legacy, which is good and interesting in one way, but it's also really sad that that's going to be it. I think I would have preferred being the guy that documented the Queen Anne's Shipwreck Project as opposed to the, the guy who fought the fight for copyrights. So. Well, is there anything else that you want to share that I haven't asked you? Um, just I've got a fabulous legal team, and we've added another lawyer, Adam Adler, from Reichman Jorgensen out of uh, Washington, D.C., and they handle commer complex uh, commercial and intellectual property litigation. And so he's been really impactful in what we do. So I just I can't say enough to my legal team who's all working pro bono. I think they're really uh, bothered by this whole scenario and feel challenged to help right a wrong here, too. And they're working awfully hard on not only my behalf, but the, the rights of, of all creators to to maybe fix this. Um, the other thing that occurred to me is that Right now, you know, Congress and the courts do not seem to be up to the challenge of handling intellectual property law and litigation. And they are decades behind where we need to be in addressing whether it's intellectual property, uh, AI issues that are coming up or NFTs. And our Congress and our legal system has got to be more nimble to um to work in the digital age because they are the systems are literally not up to the technology in the, the world we live in right now. Yeah. So many issues. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, can we just find one more thing? Right. <laughs> oh, well, I really appreciate the, um, you know, your legal team sounds amazing and the work they're doing is amazing. And the fact that you as a plaintiff uh, have the heart to go forward, knowing that you are helping others who will be impacted later. It's, it's uh, a huge thank you to you for that. Well, thank you. But I, I really have come to feel a real responsibility to, to other artists like myself through this whole process. So, you know, I, right now I'm kind of carrying them on my shoulders in a way. And so I don't want to let any of them down. Yeah. And you had mentioned something earlier about the status of the project. What is the status of the Queen Anne's Revenge Recovery Project and how has it been thwarted by the legal issues that have come up? The Queen Anne's Revenge uh, Shipwreck Project is in legal limbo. Um, 2015 was the last year that any recovery or survey work went on on the wreck site. 
Um, currently, my case is still pending in federal court, which is impacting any return to research on the project on the shipwreck site. And Intersal, the company that discovered the Queen Anne's Revenge, is still in North Carolina business court waiting on a trial date for their in their lawsuit against the state for breach of contract of the shipwreck. So our two cases together seem to be uh, standing in the way of more recovery efforts on the project, um, which also leads to a really interesting question. If the state is so right in what they're doing and feel so secure in their legal stance, why haven't they returned to working on the project? And it's going to be eight years this year, and they haven't. The the wreckage has been there for so long, but uh, with the work that was started, is there a chance that you're losing valuable information in the wreckage as you allow time to pass? Well, the argument has always been that the longer wreck sits on the bottom, the more artifacts are lost and the more context of artifacts on the wreck site are lost. And that's absolutely true. And deep shipwrecks less so because they're not impacted by uh, tides and storms and that sort of thing. But the Queen Anne's Revenge is just a mile outside of Beaufort Inlet. Um, it is subject to tidal impacts every day. And it's also certainly subject to hurricanes. And hurricanes can move 10 feet of sand off the bottom in, in, an, in a day with that with great ease. So... Yeah, every day there's a delay on the ship on the project. Um, it impacts the quality of the the science going forward, and it's certainly not something that either Nautilus or Intersal are happy about. We want we would much have preferred that shipwreck to be entirely recovered and in a museum uh, a decade ago, which was the plan. Um, but we did not create this quagmire. <laughs> Where was it when you left it? Yeah, in, in the fall of 2015, the last time there was recovery on the wreck site, approximately 60% of the wreck site had been mapped and artifacts recovered from that. So still 40% approximately of the wreck site remains, which is the portion just forward of midships and going to the bow. Um, we know for a fact that the galley is in the bow and that we've uh, through surveys that we did very early in the project, we know that there are cooking instruments. Uh, we found a, a, a kettle in the bow and also um, parts of the rigging. So we know there are artifacts to be found in the, the northern part or, of the wreck that has not been recovered. And so there's significant knowledge to be gained there. Yeah. And we've had uh, major storms in all this time that's been going uh, forward since this suit started for you? Uh, yes, since 2015, North Carolina has been impacted by at least two major hurricanes, um, and that's not going to stop. So, yeah, it's this is everybody loses here. Um, you know, the people lose, the, the state loses, science loses, um, Intersal and Nautilus lose. It's just it's a terrible situation. Um so, but what do you do when when faced with your your livelihood is under attack by a state? You can either choose to to roll over and do nothing, or you can stand up for your rights. So, I, I made the only decision I could. Yeah, and as you said, it's not just your rights; it's the rights of all the uh, folks that are to come, and those that have already been walked over by state sovereign immunity. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it and it is. It's a growing issue, and so I don't know if we'll solve it, but we'll at least put a crack in the door, hopefully. There will be a link in the show notes to learn more. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe on your preferred platform. And if you'd like to support more episodes like this, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating or review. You can also leave your comments online and tag Warfare of Art and Law Podcast or email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics, from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate, all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.